seen it on TV. We've all seen it at the movies. We've watched as the detectives go and find the bad guy. And they do it in less than 45 minutes. On top of that, we've all seen how cooperative everyone is and how easy it is to put someone in jail. But is it really is that actually the way it works? Or is that just bullshit? Today we have Vic Ferrari, who is a 20-year veteran of the New York City Police Department as most of those years as a detective who has seen everything from car thefts to murder and anything in between. Vic, how are you doing today? Paul, thank you and Andrea for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. I'm doing great. You could tell he's done this before. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being a part of our podcast. So, Vic, <clears throat> give us a little bit of history about yourself. And, and, and you've got some books as well, right? Yeah. My name is Vic Ferrari, like the car. Um, I'm a retired 20-year member of the New York City Police Department. Which is kind of ironic, though, if the name of Ferrari and you're investigating auto theft, right? Yeah, it, it wasn't lost on me. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I'm a Bronx kid born and raised in New York City. Um, when I was five years old, my mother used to take me to the movie theater, which was around the corner from the local police station. So on our way to see Herbie the Love Bug Part 3, I would run up to the police cars and look in the windows and see the equipment. I'd watch the way the cops wandered around the station house, the way they'd have their hand on the butt of their gun when they were talking to each other. So these guys got something going on. Then by the age of 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal FBI most wanted posters and go around the neighborhood on a manhunt. You know, we'd have these flyers. We'd go into the local deli and there'd be some poor guy getting a sandwich and we'd be sliding up next to him with his flyer like, look, this could be the fucker right here. <laughs> Lucky we didn't get our asses kicked. <laughs> and then by age 20, I took the police entrance exam. I got hired when I was 21. I had a wonderful 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. I worked in various units, including DUI, uh, the Narcotics Division. And then my last 10, I was a detective in the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. So anything with stolen vehicles chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, and mob control businesses was under my purview. After I retired from the NYPD, I got into writing a series of books about my former employer. And now I, you know, to promote my books, I go on podcasts and people like yourself are nice enough to put me on their platforms that I can push them. I, you can't push me. You're too far away. <laughs> I'm not a pusher. <laughs> so tell us about your books. None of my books, all well, all of my books, there's no beginning, middle, end. They're just short stories of things that happened to me during the course of my NYPD career. So for argument's sake, there's a chapter in my books, Crossing Over the Dark Side. That's about cops that went bad and police corruption. In the opening of my book, NYPD Law and Disorder, this, the opening chapter is embarrassing moments. And that's things that happened to me that embar embarrassed the hell out of me during the course of my NYPD career. 
So it's just things, interesting criminals and wild stories that happened to me during my 20 years with the New York City Police Department. Very nice. So <clears throat> you had, um, I, I guess, I watched an interview with you and 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 you you were talking about cockfighting and all sorts of different things like that. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. I never really thought that, it, but it makes sense that busting a cockfighting ring would also go with uh, but, uh, finding a stolen uh, Vespa, I think is what you said. And it makes sense to me because everybody kind of runs in those circles. Is that actually how that works? Is everybody no, running those circles? No, no, not at all. That That's a story from my, my book, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. And basically what had happened was before that whole incident, my lieutenant, I had had a couple of arrests that had nothing to do with auto crime. I walked into a bodega to buy a soda. And I walked into a fucking gambling ring and I grabbed everybody and I locked up like 10 guys with all the bed slips and stuff. Then I had a gun collar. I saw a guy getting out of a car and I saw the butt of his gun in his pants. I locked him up. So my lieutenant calls me into his office one day and he says, listen, you're doing a great job. I love your activity. Stick to auto crime. He goes, you're getting involved in all this other shit. He goes, cars, cars, cars. And I was a car guy. It just so happened I hit a streak where I was running into other shit. I said, no problem. About a week later, my sergeant calls me over. He says, listen, he says, we're getting killed with these Vespas, these little Italian motor scooters. Every hipster schmuck on the Upper East Side of Manhattan is buying <laughs> things and they park them in front of their building. And then you get these kids from the Bronx and, and Harlem and Brooklyn. They'll go up there. They see them. They jump on them and they steal them. So he says, listen, we're getting killed with these things. Can you just see if you can pick off a couple of these things to put that make the numbers go down? Because in New York, everything's a numbers game. I said, all right. So I run the plate of a couple of these stolen Vespas, and I see one got recovered with an arrest over off of Hawkstone Avenue in the Bronx. So my logic is, okay, there's a bunch of kids from that neighborhood. They went up to the Upper East Side. They stole these motor scooters. If I go up there, I'll pick a couple of them off driving these stolen motor scooters, and I'll keep my sergeant off my back. My partner and I go up there. We're driving around. We don't see any Vespa motor scooters. So I come up with an idea. That neighborhood, you have all six-story walk-ups. So in the basement of these of these walk walk up six story flats, you have um, a common area where the superintendent of the building lives, and they store snow blowers, bicycles. People rent yeah. space underneath the building to put store their shit. So <laughs> building by building, I'm going into these basements. I'm knocking on the super's doors, and these guys are thrilled to show me their underground lairs. They're opening up these common areas and everything. I saw everything you can imagine except Vespa motor scooters. The last building we go to, I'm banging on the door of this basement apartment. I can smell weed and I hear giggling. The door opens and the super of the building, he's like four feet tall. He's got this jet black slicked hair. He fucking looked like Tattoo from Fantasy Island. It's a and he's just, yeah, just <laughs> staring at me like shit, scared shitless. And I'm like, hey, Poppy, <laughs> do you mind if you show me the common area? I just want to look for these stolen Vespa motorcycles. He's yeah, and they know no planes, no Vespas. He's shaking his head. He leads me over this common area and he's dropping his keys. The guy's a fucking nervous wreck. And I'm like, something's up with this. He opens up this um, partition wall and he pulls it open. And on the floor, I kid you not, there's got to be 50 or 100 chickens and roosters running around the floor. Like, What the fuck is this? Then on the wall in pods, there's probably about another 30 or 40 birds in pods. I'm guessing those are like the fighting cocks. 
they're, they're in there and it, it's so noisy down there. And the guy's looking at me and I'm saying to myself, I know what this is. This is like a gladiator school or a weighing station for cockfighting. It's a gladiator school for cockfighting. Russell Crowe, man. He's in there with them cocks. <laughs> there was a lot of cocks in there. So I tell him, I says, all right, just lock it up. No problem. No Vespas. He goes, it's okay. I go, yeah. He goes, it's okay. I go, yeah, I don't give a shit. No Vespas, no Vespas. So we leave. I get outside. I get on my cell phone. I call my sergeant up. I says, listen, get the fucking cavalry down here. I says, I just walked into this huge cockfighting ring. I says, we're going to make so much overtime. We're going to have to call the ASPCA. This is going to be a big moneymaker for us. <laughs> so, my so-, so my sergeant goes, call the ASPCA. I said, what are you talking about? I said, this thing could be huge. He goes, the lieutenant left for the day. I said, call him. He goes, what did he tell you? Stick to autocrime. So I hang up. And I don't know if you guys remember, but this is going back 15, 20 years ago. There was a television show called Animal Precinct on Animal Planet. It was like a reality show that followed the ASPCA police around New York. Yes. And like they were arresting people that were like mistreating their animals. Do you guys remember that show? I do. I do. My kids watched it. It was mindless. I was busy drinking. Yeah, me too. I, it was mindless. I would just put on the TV and fall asleep with it. So I call the ASPCA and I get one of the guys from the television show. And he couldn't be happy. He goes, are you kidding me? This sounds great. Thank you so much. He goes, you don't want this. I said, they told me to give it away. He goes, I'll tell you what. He goes, let us look into this. If we get a warrant for the location, he goes, I'll call you up and maybe you can get a couple hours overtime. I said, no problem. So I forget about this whole thing with the cockfighting and everything else and the Vespas. About a month later, I took a couple of days off and helped my dad put a fence in the yard. It's this guy from the ASPCA. He goes, listen, this is going to be huge. We're hitting the place tomorrow. Do you want to come? I said, no. I says, I got to take tomorrow off to help my dad. I go, and I was told to keep my nose out of it. He goes, no problem. Day or two later, it's in every New York City newspaper. New York City's largest cockfighting ring busted by the ASPCA. So it's, I think it's funny, right? I come into work and my sergeant, who wasn't that bright, says, is this the thing? Is this the thing you were talking to me about? about Try to fucking tell you, you dumb shit. He goes and tells our lieutenant who who wanted me to stick to autocrime, but he was a publicity hound. My my old lieutenant was one of these guys. He always had his nose pressed up against the glass. He always wanted to be in that press conference. When he finds out about it, he goes fucking ape shit. He calls me in the room. He goes, Ferrari, what the fuck is wrong with you? He goes, this could have been big for us. I go, you told me to stick to auto crime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, you know, <clears throat> what goes around comes around. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's fucking with you. He's, he screwed himself, you know? Oh, my gosh. I mean, that must have been quite a sight to walk in and see all these chickens everywhere. I would have been like, oh, I'm out. <laughs> Oh, we're laughing our asses off because I no, I wasn't out. I was all in. I just had to listen. Had I not gotten that phone call, had I not gotten called into my sergeant lieutenant's office and given that speech a couple of days before, that guy would have been in cuffs, and I would have called our office and said, "Listen, start getting guys down here, ASPCA. You know, call yeah. the Bronx attorney's office. I'm going to get a warrant. Call the se- call the colonel. Colonel's got some chicken to pick up here." Yeah, and Colonel well, Sanders. Yeah. Blew, I, no, I got it. <laughs> I got it. I'm just like, I get it. Ha, ha, ha. Well, what else are you going to do with all them damn chickens? I'm thinking, you know, vat of, of you know, vegetable oil and some flour and some spices. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Can't fight them, but you sure as hell can kill them. Tough. Right, you know what? You cook tough. them. The longer you cook them, the easier they get to eat. 
That's all there is. Oh my gosh. What? I'm just picturing it in my head. Um, I bet you have lots and lots of stories that come out of your books. But is there anything out of there that will always be the most me- memorable or funny or? Oh God, I have so many. Um, so that book, so NYP Lawrence Disorder with the embarrassing moments chapter. I open up the book where I pull over a gypsy cab and there's three guys in the back seat and they're passing around a brown shopping bag. The bag rips open and there's four kilos of coke. So we lock everybody up. We bring them into the station house. I'm parading around like I won the Stanley Cup. Guys are taking photos with me. You know, everybody's blowing smoke up my ass. I'm going to go to the narcotics division with a great arrest. That night, I had to go down to the Bronx courthouse and draw up an arrest with a district attorney. So the Bronx courthouse area is a shitty neighborhood. And after five o'clock, there's no place to eat. But they had just opened up a food court across the street. I go across the street. I order some, you know, chicken parm and spaghetti. I'm in uniform. I'm eating. I'm reflected on the arrest. And my stomach goes, oh, I got to take a dump. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, the bathroom across the street in the Bronx courthouse is a dungeon. So I said to myself, wow, the food court area, this has got to have a new bathroom, right? I'll go in there. I go in there. It's like a cathedral. It's clean. No one's ever taken a dump in this place before. There's no one in there. I'm like, great. I go into the stall. I take off my gun belt. I hang it on the hook. I drop my pants to my knees. I'm getting ready for liftoff. And I hear the fucking front door of the bathroom kick open. And about four or five teenagers run in. Oh, no. They're hitting the hand dryers. They're throwing the sinks on. They're, you know, roughhousing in there. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a cop. But I got my pants down to my knees. I'm kind of vulnerable, right? <laughs> All of a sudden, it gets quiet in the men's room. And I'm saying to myself, did they leave? Or did they see a pair of legs underneath the stall? And they decided to not knock it off. Well, something told me to look up, and I'm sitting on the bowl. I look up. One of the teenagers ran into the next stall. He jumped up on top of the toilet, and he's reaching over the stall trying to get my gun belt that's hanging on the hook. Oh, no. I went, oh, shit. So I jumped up with my left hand and tried to pull my pants up. And with my right hand, I got him around the neck. And when I pulled him, I inadvertently pulled him closer to my gun belt. He latches onto the gun belt. Now I got to drop my pants with my left hand, right? They're down to my ankles, and it's a hockey fight. I got him around the neck. I'm just punching him, roundhouse punching him. Knock it off. Let go of the gun. Let go of the gun. His friends run into the next stall. They got his legs. And now it's a fucking tug of war over this bullshit, you know, aluminum partition. (laughs) He drops the gun. He lets go of the gun belt. It hits the floor. That's a felony, man. Dude, it gets better. (laughs) I'm trying to hold on to him. They pull him over the wall and the fucking wall fucks and almost collapses, right? (laughs) I pull up my pants. I put on my gun belt. I, I open the door. They're gone. I run into the food court. There's a 300-pound porter with a Sony Walkman buffing the floor. I run up to him. I'm throwing my hands in front of his face. I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. He takes out the ear the ear things out of his ear, and I go, do you see a bunch of teenagers run through here? And he goes, no. So what was I – so in the book I write, what was I supposed to do at that point? Call the police on myself? <laughs> it's a small place. There's 12 precincts, and everybody meets at court. I would have been the laughing stock at the Bronx. Laughing stock. Oh. Me. That's the guy. That's the guy that lost his gun in the toilet. So oh, story no. quiet until I wrote my book. It it had been like it had been like, hey, when you point your gun at somebody, you're supposed to use the one in your holster. Yeah. Oh, it was bad, man. It, it was it was that was bad. So around here at my work, we have somebody that likes to steal, what is it, catalytic converters? Catalytic, catalytic converters. Catalytic, catalytic. Yeah, yeah, that. Catalytic converters. Catalytic converters off of cars. 
Now, I don't know how this person's doing it, but that seems to be a very popular thing around here, at least. So what can you do to protect your car from, like, people jacking with it, essentially? You know, it, it depends on where you live. I mean, obviously, keep it in the garage, but a lot of people don't have a garage. Well, they're still in, get- a, in the parking lot during business hours. I At know. a hospital. Yeah. I know. And it's you funny. Know, it, it's it was funny because all of us are sitting there and we're working. It's a little business office area out the little subsec from the hospital. And we're like sitting up and I was working away. My employees come in you know, and they're like, hey, the building's about. Did you see there's some cops out there? And I'm like, OK, I'm sure someone's handling it. You know, then we found out later that, you know, is anything missing from your cars? And we're like, no, I always lock mine, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, the catalytic converter was stolen off somebody's car. Just right there. Yeah, you start your car and you sound like you got open headers. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, why do people want that part? Oh, I know why they want it. Why? It, Vic, that, do you know about that? Yeah, it's the metal of the cat. It's the metal that they make the catalytic converter with. It, it's 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 what what is it? Um, what kind? It's a certain type of metal. That's, Manganese that's and crap like that. I think. Yeah, it's very expensive. But here's the thing. You know, if you've got a rash of that going on in your neighborhood at a community meeting, or go to the police department and. Basically, there's only so many places you can get rid of that stuff, and 99% of the time, it's a scrap metal processor, oh, yeah. and it's it's going to be within 30 miles, and the cops got to lean on the scrap metal processor. You know what I mean? Because yeah. that's where it's going. You know what I mean? There's no there's no guy in his basement with a kiln or something melting this shit down into into um, magnesium bars and <laughs> shipping it overseas. It's going to the local scrap metal processor. Right now, if the criminals are smart, they'll take it out of county or someplace else. But there's so many. There's just so many scrap metal processes. Okay. Because I'm thinking, well, what's next? You're going to pull off a car. And another thing is like car alarms will go off. And I've, I've just noticed this the other day when I was shopping. No one co- gives a shit car alarm went a car off, alarm going And right. I'm sitting there and I stop and I look around and everyone's just walking by in their own business. And I'm like, wow, we've gotten so desensitized from car alarms. Platinum, rhodium, and palladium. Is that what's in those things? Yeah, because it, it turns that carbon dioxide into something else. Yeah, it catches it. It, fil- it filters it out. Supposedly. Yeah, there's a there's a, 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 chemi- a chemistry. The, the chemistry of those three metals together changes uh, carbon dioxide and a few other things that come through there. Also catches any lead that may be left over because we used to have lead and gas. Oh, that's true. There's yeah. still a little bit of lead and gas. Mm-hmm. But uh, without the lead, our, all our cars knock. If you mm. want, but but they couldn't. They had to figure that out. That's why we took lead out of the gas. Because in L.A., everybody was dying. <laughs> well, but yeah, it just totally blew my mind how people are like, don't pay attention to car alarms or nothing. And I'm like, well, well, shit. All you got to do is pretty much just lock your car. I mean, right? Let's. Not- well, you know, if this was 30 years ago, what the average person would do is after they got their catalytic convert again 30 years ago. If someone got their catalytic converter stolen, they would just put a straight pipe in. <laughs> and not, and not, if their state didn't run, run, you had to bring your car in for emissions every yeah. year. Well, your car probably would run better 30 years ago without a catalytic converter. Right. But nowadays, the way the cars are set up, it'll start popping codes. And, yeah. you know, it, it, it'll be a shit show for your car. <laughs> That's true. That's crazy. So we had uh, a guy on, uh, Robert Jestic. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. No. Uh, he uh, was basically an MTA administrator for the New York City Police Department for 40 years or 20 or 40 years. I can't remember. And 
he, he was interesting, but you know, I thought he would have some more stories. And I, I like him. He's a pretty good guy. He's kind of quiet. But he was we were going over some statistics for um uh crime statistics. Yeah, crime statistics and in in auto crime in nineteen ninety there were 3,900 cars stolen that year in New York City. Oh, no, 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 no. In the, in the 90s, New York City averaged 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. Wow. So I was just getting it off, you know, random w- w- internet websites. But now it's down to like, what, 300 and something or something like that? It's not. I don't know. You got to remember now, I'm retired 15 years. But like in the 90s, it was like shooting fish in the barrel. If you were rolling around and you had a computer car or you knew what to look for just to run plates, you run a couple of plates a night, you were going to come up with a stolen car. I mean, it was just that blatant. Wow. Why? What? And they were they they were just reselling them. People were driving yeah, them around. What are they doing with them? Well, there's there's a lot of reasons people steal cars. So let's start with the pains in the ass. The pains in the ass car thieves are children, yeah. teenagers, and 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 drug addicts. So kids steal cars to get around. They want to drive by high school, take their girlfriend to the movie. It's a rite of passage crime, right? Then you've got drug addicts. Drug addicts steal cars to commit other crimes, right? To do shoplifting, to get around. They also use the car to buy drugs that go to their drug spot. Or you got a heroin addict or a crackhead. They want to shoot up or smoke and then just fall asleep in a park somewhere. It kind of becomes like theirs. They hold on to it forever. That's the only those two groups are the only people that really hold on to a stolen vehicle more than a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the mid-level thieves. Those are the guys that have friends that that do racing. So, you know, you got kids that are racing Hondas or something. They blow an engine. They're not, they don't have the money for an engine. You know, you got a kid working in, in, in Starbucks who's into, you know, off, you know, illegal car racing. They're going to go steal that same car, take the motor out in the back of someone's garage, put it in their car and then tow that car somewhere and dump it. And then what you've got is the professionals. Those are the guys that are out stealing for the body shops. They're stealing for the guys that are exporting cars out of the country. They steal the order. They're going to steal a car. They're going to park it somewhere. They're going to check it for GPS or low jack. And then when they get the call, bring that car here. Or sometimes they just deliver it to a spot. They don't even run into the guy that's taking the car off their hands. They leave the key under the mat or leave a key somewhere else. Interesting. So, mm. like, how are they stealing it? Are they just, like, people being stupid and leaving their keys in the car? Or that thing you see on the movies where you, you slap these two wires together and it starts? I always wonder if that was a real thing. Well, no, that. no, no. Like, so technology has changed so much. But, like, when I was active, like General Motors products, Chevys, Buicks, they, you had the long steering column. So, basically, all you had to do was get a screwdriver and jimmy the lock to get in. And with a hammer, you would just bust up that steering column and there'd be two pins and you pull them. Yeah. And you start oh. the car, you're on your way. Or Fords. They're, they're relatively, these cars are relatively easy to steal. The auto manufacturers make it easy to steal because the more cars that get stolen, the more people are going to get their insurance check and go buy another car. <laughs> so it just, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, people in New York really don't leave their keys in the car. You know, it happens. But um, no, car thieves go around at night. Um, in the old days, they'd pull out a door lock, and then on the lo- on certain um, certain uh, models, there'd be a code, and then with a Curtis key coder- cutter, they would put in the code, and then just make a new key for the for the car. So they would just pull out a door lock and come back with a key for the ignition. Or then you get the butchers that pull out the ignition. Oh my gosh! 
now you have uh, they've got uh, <clears throat> the ge- general uh, generic uh, kind of like a radio mm-hmm. that it just for brute forces its way through all the codes until the door is open. Yeah, it steals the signal off the key fob. Yeah, and then that's it because the key fobs are always RFID, so they're always putting something out, or they wouldn't know you're in your car. Right. Mm. So now you just walk by. It's the same thing with your with your wallet. You got all those RFID chips in your in your credit cards now. Somebody walk up to you with an RFID reader that's really sensitive. They can pick up all that, and they got all your they got your card, credit card, the right. number on the back. Like that whole Target thing where they put it on the back of the little swiper thing kind of situation. Yeah, even worse because they, you don't even have to be involved in it. You could. It's just you're always putting out a signal. Is it too loud? No, my ear was itching. Okay. Um, interesting. You have to understand. For me, I'm. I don't think of this stuff. I don't sit there and think, hmm, how am I going to do this? I don't have like a criminal mind, I guess, <laughs> to think like, how are they doing that? But. It's kind of scary when you're trying to like, you know, just barely put food on the table and you have a car and then someone turns around and steals it because they're just being a selfish asshole. Yeah. Yeah. And even if your car gets recovered, then it's a pain in the ass to get it back because it used to happen all the time. I'd recover someone's stolen car and then the district attorney's office would want to hold it for a couple of days as evidence. Then the car goes out and then the precinct doesn't want the car there. So then you got to take it out to the pound. And then the person's got to, you know, get a release. Then they got to go down to court and get a release from the district attorney's office. Then they got to drive all the way out to Queens by the airport and get their car out. And then, you know, they're victimized twice because now they now they go through all this to get their car. They don't know what kind of shape it's in. You know, now they got to replace yeah. the steering column. You know what I mean? We recovered Mike Tyson's stolen Ducati, and we recovered it before the thirty days. So, so he did, he he was upset. If memory serves me correctly, his bike had gotten chopped. It had gotten taken into. You want to hear that story? Sure. <laughs> yeah. We had an informant that used to give us so much shit. And uh, one day he told us a story about this car thief named Horatio who saw Mike Tyson driving down the West Side Highway on a on a on a Ducati, which at the time was a thirty thousand dollar Italian motorcycle. Yeah. This is like in the mid nineties. So this guy Horatio followed Tyson. He parked his bike on the street and went into the Javits Center. Horatio jumped on the bike, broke the ignition, took the bike up to Washington Heights and drove the motorcycle into his first floor apartment. <laughs> so we tell the we ask, I tell the informant, give me the apartment number. We're going to get a warrant. We're going to kick in Horatio's door and get the bike back. And he says, well, hold off on that. He's going to steal another couple of motorcycles and then he's going to ship them to the Dominican Republic. He goes, you can get him, the shipper, everything. I said, all right. So a couple of weeks later, it was on Sunday, my partner calls me up and he goes, hey, you looking to make overtime? I go, what's up? He goes, remember Mike Tyson's motorcycle got stolen? I said, yeah. He goes, they took all the bikes. They took them apart. They put them in shipping crates. They're going to take a van out to Kennedy Airport. There was a, uh, a shipper there. They were going to send it air freight. I thought it was going to go in a shipping container overseas, but they were actually going to airlift it out. So what we wound up doing was we were waiting at the shipper's uh, building. And this guy, Horatio, and a couple of guys pulled up in a stolen van filled with crates of motorcycles all in bubble wrap and pieces that were going to get shipped to the Dominican Republic to be reassembled and stolen. And from what I remember, Mike Tyson was a little upset because if after 30 days they won't recover your motorcycle or car, the insurance company cuts you a check. Yeah. If it gets recovered before that time, 
They'll give you, you know, they'll they'll pay at the body shop to fix your car or put your motorcycle back together. But from what I remember, he wasn't too happy about it. <laughs> he wanted a new bike. <laughs> he wanted a new bike. <clears throat> so you caught that guy, though, right? Huh? Did- yeah, here's the funny thing. So Horatio's no longer with us. So we kept locking up Horatio, and then he skipped bail, and he took off to the Dominican Republic. And he had been shipping toys there for years. He had been shipping cars and motorcycles there, selling them, and... So he figured he was going to live high in the hog there. And what wound up happening was him and his friends were driving around on motorcycles in the Dominican Republic on some road, probably all stolen bikes from the Bronx. (laughs) A car came around a bend and hit one of his friends. And that motorcycle came flying back and decapitated Horatio. Oh. Wow. So we found this out from our informant. Oh, my. Well, you know, couldn't happen to a better person. (laughs) <laughs> well, he never wandered back on the playing field in New York, so we believe the story. Because a lot of times these guys will tell you anything, but yeah. that was the last we ever saw of him. Hmm. Well, so, wow. What was, one thing I always like to ask is, what was the most horrendous, heinous thing that you ever had to walk up on? I had a couple. Um, I walked in on a homicide. Uh, what happened was it came, it was the early 90s, it came over as a cardiac and again, you never know what you get yourself into. Cardiac. It says one thing and it's something else. What yeah, it came up with a cardiac. What do, you, what do you mean by cardiac? Someone was having a heart attack. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. okay. Just to make sure. So we, so we come run. It's a six-story walk up. It's Saturday night. My partner and I come running up the stairs. There's a bunch of people in the apartment. They're screaming and crying. They had a galley kitchen. As I came around the bend of the apartment, I saw a pair of legs coming out of the kitchen. There was a woman laid on the floor. She had been stabbed multiple times. Her son was on top of her crying, screaming, mom, mom, mom. So we take the young man. We tell him, all right, you got you got to get off. Get off of her. We made him sit on the couch. And if you've ever cut yourself, you know, blood is bright red. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the blood splattered throughout the kitchen was dried. It was like a rust color. So we, yeah. we knew she was there for quite some time. So we sit him on the couch. The apartment's been ransacked. And we just start asking him basic questions like, when was the last time you saw your mother? And he went from being hysterical to then he starts getting weird. When, when was the last time I saw my mother? Yeah. Oh, about four hours ago. Um, do you know anybody that would do this? He looks up. Do I know anybody that would do this? So now he's buying time. Every question I'm asking him, he's repeating yeah. the question. Then you start looking around the apartment. And although it's ransacked, it's obvious that it's been staged. When a burglar breaks into your house, they're dumping things out of the, out of your drawers to see what you have in them. They're not dumping shit and then putting it back in. <laughs> so that was odd. Then her bag was turned upside down and the credit cards were still there. And this is the early 90s before people knew you could track credit cards. So that was odd. So the detectives take him into the precinct to talk to him. And I was tasked with, you know, gathering evidence at the crime scene. So later on, I go back to the precinct and um, I ask the detectives, what's going on with this guy? And they go, he definitely knows what's going on. He, uh, he knows more than what he's saying. We don't know if he did it or not. He says, but he definitely knows more. And the deceased, she had three brothers that lived across the bil- in the next building across the street. They were over and the detectives told them the same thing. Like, listen, your nephew knows something, but he's not telling us. Well, the nephew wanted to go home. He didn't ask for a lawyer, but he wanted to leave. So you don't want to push it because if you push it and he says, I want a lawyer, all bets are off. Yeah, you got to stop. The detective said, fine. They let him leave, figuring they're going to go make a run at him first thing in the morning. So the next morning in the New York City Police Department, the first cop on, on at a crime scene with the deceased 
You have to go the next day and identify the body for identification purposes. Before that body goes to the morgue, you got to tie. It's like this little piece of oak tag. It's called a 95 tag with my information and the deceased information. And you tie it around their big, big toe. So the next morning I go down to the morgue and uh, it's a skeleton crew. It was a Sunday. It was this young guy working. I hand him the paperwork. I says, I'm here to see this person. He goes, okay. And it's not like you see on TV. In the Bronx at that time, they had a large refrigerator room. It wasn't like the slide-in drawers that you see on television. And uh, he wheels out a gurney. He pulls off a sheet. There's a black guy with a beard. <laughs> and I said, no. I says, no. I says, I says, it's a female Hispanic. He goes, oh. Throws the sheet back over the black guy's head, and he wheels him back into the, into the, um, the room, the refrigerator room. Comes out a couple of seconds later with, with another gurney, pulls the sheet off, and it's an old wino. Oh, I says, dude. I says, I says, dude, I didn't come here to see everybody that got whacked in the Bronx last night. <laughs> I'm here to see her. So I says, let me in there. So it's I obviously a this- long list. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was a refrigerator room. There was like eight, ten bodies in there. It was like a fucking horror movie. And um, I walked over. I, I, I saw my handwriting on one of the tags. I pulled the sheet off. It was the deceased from the night before. I ID'd her. And I made my way up to the precinct. So when I, when I got to the precinct, I went upstairs and all the detectives are celebrating. So I go, what happened? Well, they got up bright and early. They went to the building where the kid lived. And thank God the two detectives spoke fluent Spanish. There were two Spanish detectives. When they went into the hallway of the building, they could hear yelling. And in the hallway, it was the, it was the son. He got confronted by his three uncles. Uh-oh. And they were yelling at him in Spanish. What the fuck is going on? The detective said, you know more that's going on. And the kid blurted out what happened. He was a crackhead. He was living with his mother and he was stealing from her. And she had been through this with him many times before. And she told him, look, you're abusive. You're stealing shit out of my house. She goes, you got to go. So he picked up a kitchen knife and he stabbed her to death in the kitchen. Then what he did was he got a plastic garbage bag. He put the murder weapon in his bloody clothes in in the bag. He took a shower. And then what he did was he left the door ajar hoping that while he was gone for a couple hours disposing of, of, of you know, evidence, someone would find her and they would walk in and then they would call the police and start the ball rolling. Instead, he comes back three, four hours later and nobody found her. So now people have seen him coming and going from the point. Now wow. he can't leave again. So what he does is that's when he gets on the phone and starts making phone calls and somehow it came over as a cardiac, which it wasn't. And that's how I walked into it. And I just checked recently. He's still in jail. So that's almost 30. That happened, I think, in like 94. So we're almost going on 30 years and he should be there for the rest of his life. Yeah. He's just killing his mom. Yeah. So I got a question. You said that you had to go in and ID her. Do they not have family that ID her? That would happen. That would happen if someone was found on the street and and they didn't carry identification and they kind of narrowed it down. Okay, because I was always, I guess I kept thinking, well, you really only know her because, well, she was dead on the floor. So I'm thinking, I always figured that's, I used to work as a coroner's assistant in Michigan, and we would always have family that did it. Yeah. There were a couple times that we had cops come in, but I was just the one that assisted in autopsies. I didn't really deal with any of the other stuff, but we just always had family. So when you said ID, I was like, well, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What a homicide, the, uh, the, 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 the first cop on the scene has to go. Yeah, so Andrea has a little bit of experience, and she hates it when I bring this up, but it's so fascinating. Oh, my God. There was a case in Michigan, and I'm going to keep it very generic, so I don't want really to get any sort of trouble. And I was in nursing school, and I was trying to make money, and I was 
nurses tech and I was still poor so I picked up Pol- a- there's she didn't do anything with poles just letting everyone oh my, know right no now. I was a nursing assistant nope <laughs> It's not a pole dancer like some other people trying to get through school. But anyway, I tried, but they were like, no, man, the pole's not going to hold. Oh, my gosh. So I got a job as a coroner's assistant and I got to see a lot of interesting things and experience a lot of different things. But I got called out to a farm and basically walked up there and they handed me a set of waiters and the guy's like, "Okay, put these on. So I did. He goes, okay, go in there. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? He goes, you're supposed to look for parts. I'm like, parts? He goes, yeah, parts. Pig farm. It's a pig farm. So we're in there in the mud looking for whatever we could find. Teeth. I found a bunch of teeth. I found side of a jawbone. We're supposed to bring it over. They're supposed to do their thing. Found out that it ended up being a case where a guy was picking up hookers in Michigan. and It's the big one, yeah. Having his fun and then disposing him on his pig farm so yay (laughs) i to this day have an issue with looking at some pork products without having that lovely flashback of digging in the mud so (laughs) oh yeah in in new york so the first so when someone dies in their house or apartment right the the cops show up and the cops start a preliminary investigation then the detectives come the met uh the, the emts come and they initially pronounce the person dead but you have to wait for the medical examiner to show up and that could take hours, probably sometimes 12, 13 hours waiting for this guy to show up. And then he'll come and he'll say natural death, unnatural death. If he says that it's a natural death, he tells the family can call a funeral home and they can take the body out. Or if he says, no, this is going to have to have more scrutiny. Then the morgue wagon comes and two guys come and lift the body out in a a body bag and take them down to the morgue. You have to stay there all day. Yeah. So there's a story from my book, NYPD Through the Looking Glass. There's this lazy cop that we knew, and uh, he was a housing cop, and he was on a foot post. And this old man died in his apartment. What's, what's a foot post? Well, instead of being a radio car, you're, just, you're on foot. You get, you get a couple of blocks that you're supposed to cover on oh, foot by yourself. Okay. So he gets a call. The super of this building finds an old gentleman that he was friends with dead in his bed. And the old man was only dead a couple of hours. So the, the ball starts rolling. The paramedics show up. They go, yeah, he's dead. So this cop, it was a Friday night. The cop was lazy, and he knew he was going to get stuck for maybe eight, ten hours watching this dead body. We call it sitting on a DOA, and he's trying to get out of it. So he tells the, he asks the two AMTs, he goes, can't you take him out of here? And they go, he goes, you know we can't move the body unless he dies in public view. Then we would take him straight to the morgue. So the cops, you know, he tries, tries to finagle it, and they tell him no. They leave. About a half hour later, the same two EMTs get a call of a cardiac on the same floor of that building. Oh, my God. They go rushing up. They get off the elevator. And the dead man, the guy that they saw dead in the bed is now in the hallway. Oh, my God. They go, go, what the fuck is this? And the cop now, he's busted. And he goes, uh, you're not going to believe this. After you guys left, the guy jumped out of the bed. He said, oh, fuck. He ran through the apartment. He opened the door. And he fell down. He died again on the floor. He died again on the floor. They go, get the fuck out of here. He started getting rigor mortis. Like, you can just tell. Like, the body was dragged through the apartment. So He was scared stiff. That's all. The whole supervisor shows up, and uh, (laughs) the EMTs make their case, and the cop is just lying through his teeth. And he wound up getting suspended. He lost 30 vacation days. He got put on a year probation. He got bounced up to the Bronx. And if this would have happened nowadays, he would have been fired and, 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 and probably gone to jail. Yeah. But he kept his job. 
But if, okay, say it wasn't a natural death, you just disturbed a crime scene. Correct. Yeah, I maybe, mean, maybe. Maybe. It, I'm just saying plain devil's advocate. Well, you here. never know. I mean, just because the coroner <laughs> says it's not a, or it's a natural death, the cop's still supposed to look, at least look around and document some stuff, I'm sure. Isn't that right? Yeah. So if he's moving the body and they say, oh, it's natural death, and they come back, oh, he was poisoned with strychnine. Yeah, and now they got a big problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the chain of evidence is fucked. And the attorneys happen to, you know, well, how do you know that it wasn't, you know, the Good person luck. moved the body that did it? I mean, oh, oh. absolutely. A defense attorney would be all over that. Yeah, if, I, if they could charge somebody, sure. I have a little background in um, nursing paralegal, so I enjoyed learning. You are some, a paralegal. Yes, I haven't. I don't practice yet. I'm still kind of, you know, I'm too busy with my current job, but. um I always thought it was interesting having to look at the other side of the coin. So they would always give us cases and say, what could we have done better at this or this, that, the other. But a lot of them, you had to play each side and always be like, well, they touched the body. And if I was a defense attorney, this is what I'd say. <laughs> so I'm like, right. yeah, we have rules for a reason. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, <clears throat> the how do you become a detective in the New York City Police Department? You have to work in an investigative unit. Uh, I forget the timeline now. I think it was 18 months. It might be more now. So if you got to work in a unit like auto crime, vice, RIP, which is robbery identification program, um, internal affairs. There's, there's different units in the department where you're working in, you're a police officer, but you're working in an investigative capacity. After, if after that time period you have good evaluations, then you get moved up to detective. Now, detective, New York City, a detective, it's a lateral move. You're not a supervisor. You know what I mean? So to become a sergeant, the civil service exam, same with lieutenant and captain, and then above it's political. But um, yeah, detective is a lateral move from police officer. How uh, how uh, hard is it to, I mean, can you pick the, kind, the unit you go into? Yeah, but you've got to have, so... There's, there's, to get into these units, there's a couple of ways. One is we call it the hook or the crane. A hook is if you know somebody, your father is a captain, your uncle is a lieutenant, and he knows somebody in that unit. So nepotism is always a thing. Then runs wild in the NYPD. <laughs> you're never going to find you're never going to find any any anyone's kid below the rank of captain on patrol in a shitty precinct. It's just it's just not going to happen. You'll see the last name of somebody and you go, I'll bet you that's Inspector So-and-So's kid. Um, I was wow. lucky. I got into the, uh, the auto crime division because I was a car guy. I was always, I made hundreds of stolen car arrests. So when I went for my interview, they said, yeah, he's, he, he, he could be useful. But that, but if there was somebody, but when I was, you know, when they were pulling people into auto crime, if there were more people there that had phone calls, I wasn't getting in. Really? Wow. Yeah, I just timed it right. Huh. So, all right. So, what's the better detective? Where did they? Is there a better place to be a detective? They tend. They. They. T yeah. I mean, this, listen. There's morons everywhere. <laughs> I mean, I mean I, I've. I, I've. You know, gone to you know, including my own unit or ha having to go to different units for help with different cases, and you're like, oh my god. Like this, this, this guy's a fucking idiot. But um, I will say it's been my experience that the, the homicide detectives, if there's one thing they don't fuck around with, it's the homicide units. Because, you know, if I fuck up a case and a car thief walks, oh, well, 
Yeah. You fuck up a case and, and a guy for two or three homicides walks, that, that's a big deal. He's going to kill gonna somebody else. Pistols all over the place. Right. So those guys and girls tend to be the best of the best. Um, it, it's, it's an art to be a homicide detective. Now, I, I did organize crime cases where we were up on wire. If you ever saw the movie Heat with Al Pacino, oh. that's what we did with car thieves. That has the best. Is that the one with the shootout with Val Kilmer? Yeah. That's the best shootout ever. And it's and then like a year or two later, it actually happened to real life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Robbery. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we did. But we weren't in suits and ties. I mean, we were in jeans and sneakers. But yeah, we were up on wiretaps. We were following people all hours of the night. You know, a couple of times I had search warrants where I stole people's cars. And we installed listening devices in their cars and put the car back in the middle of the night. <laughs> so, it, but my point is on, on these wiretaps, sometimes you would come across homicides and we would start building a case. So the homicide had already taken place. They're just bragging about it or someone's bringing it up. Remember, Walter, he, he's, he's not around anymore. Now we're trying to figure out who the victim is. And who was he associated with who's no longer on the playing field? And we'll build that case to a certain point. And then when we take that case down, now we're going to bring the homicide detectives in. We're going to let them handle that aspect of it. We'll build that case because it's in the past. Yeah. You know what I mean? We'll, we'll bring them on board and start, you know, trying to figure out who they're talking about. Is somebody missing that, you know. So, but no, the homicide guys and girls are usually the best. They tend not to skimp when it comes with talent going in there. Do you, do you get paid more there? No. Um, there's grades in the NYP. So detective, you have first, <laughs> second, and third grade detective. Don't get me wrong. Most of the people in the homicide detective will achieve first grade, and rightfully so. Yeah. But in the other units, you get grade basically the same way you get in the front door. If your father's a chief or an inspector, boom. If they're looking to make a political point with somebody, boom. But yeah. you know the grunts tend don't tend not to get that that bump in pay. It's kind of saved. They and they wave it like a carrot in front of you. Like they call it being on the grid. So basically, you're put into the hopper for promotion. But like my lieutenant told me, because I was in that hopper for years, and he goes, "Listen, you've been invited to the dance. Now you just got to get picked." And that's when you start politicking and going to events Man. and joining. I wow. won't do that. I just I couldn't do, I couldn't be bothered. It wasn't that important to me. So I, what I what bothers me about some of the old boy networks like that, and is you know the people with talent get skipped over because they're busy. The people who are yeah people who have talent generally are busy because that's the you know, if you're doling out cases or doing anything in any in any industry the person who's got the talent you're going to give them the workload because I want it done right what what is it like out of every hundred people in your office like four of them are actually doing any work you know that's just like we, the average we used to say that about the New York City Police Department we used to say. 90% of the department was useless. 5% was really good. And there was another 5% that really tried, <laughs> you know, that weren't that good, but they tried. Like they'd always, you know, have your back, but they just, you know, they didn't think outside the box. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of dead wood. But, you know, it's just, I, I hate that about it because, you know, it's, there's so much talent, but yeah. if no one leverages the talent, things are going to suck. Well, the curious thing about it is, 
We, I, I was, you know, the the crime has gone down dramatically since the nineties. It's, it's according to statistics. Um, what do you tra- attribute that to in New York City? Yeah, that's a good question. Crime's not down in New York City. According crime's to the statistics, crime's been going up in New York. They play with the numbers. When they started, when they started this Comstat stuff, where they started making precinct commanders accountable. Yeah. So it used to be crime was crime. And they would say downtown would say, could you get the robbery numbers down in the 90s? What they started with this Comstat, So it works like this. One police plaza has a unit and they'll say, OK, next Friday, the Bronx is up. So every commanding officer, there's 12 precincts in the Bronx. They'll bring down 12 commanding officers and their lackeys. And it's like Lord of the Flies. They'll say, OK, <laughs> commanding officer of the 4-6 precinct, step up to the podium and what are you doing about your homeless problem? Homeless problem? Well, I don't really think I got a homeless problem. And then the screen in the background, they're showing photos because these jackals send their guys out and take photos of things and gather wow. evidence against it. And then, you know, that guy gets kicked out of his command. So they terrify these commanding officers. So they start playing games with the numbers. So they make it more difficult to report sort of certain things. You know what mm. I mean? So they'll st- they, and, and, and some of them got caught. You know, for just finagling with the numbers. Also, I mean, violent crime's going up, but for a while it went down, and that's because of identity theft. You know, criminals quickly figured out, you know, no one's carrying that much cash anymore. Stores aren't carrying that much cash anymore. That's true. It's plastic. So, and if I stick a gun in someone's face, I'm going to get 30 years, whereas I put a swipe in a gas station thing. If anyone's ever had their identity stolen or their credit card hacked, the police agency never wants to take the report. They tell you to file it somewhere else. That's right. And even if you do find the department that, that, that or the jurisdiction that was willing to help, nobody knows what to do with it. That, and you know that happened to me. Theft, you're not going to get. You're not, you're not getting thirty years. So I, so I had Starbucks had a problem where for a while with their uh, their app and their cards. So you would have your your Starbucks card on the app for Starbucks. And that's how you pay for your drinks. Well, somebody hacked into their uh, hacked into their database and took uh, people like myself. Oh, I remember this story. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they 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 took my uh, card and bought a bunch of shit in New Jersey on the, just on the turnpike, Starbucks on the tar- turnpike in New Jersey. They bought they bought what a, a cappuccino machine or something a, a like that. Cappuccino yeah. machine, like ten pounds of coffee. Ten pounds yeah. of coffee. And it was like uh, okay, it was like three hundred bucks. And I and I so I called local PD. They said, well, we can't do anything about it here because it was in New Jersey. New Jersey called New Jersey. Said, well, we can't do anything about it here because Starbucks home office is in Seattle. It's probably where the crime occurred. Well, they want you to come in. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. I, I really don't give two shits what you do about this person. I just want to make sure I don't have to pay for it. That's all I can. Yeah, about. exactly. <laughs> oh, that happens all the same with missing persons. You know, someone calls up from Chicago and calls the New York City Police Department and says, my, my daughter was supposed to come out here. You know, you know, then it becomes, well, you're going to have to come here and fill out a forensic. They're not going to take the report over the phone. No. You, you know what I mean? So she's going to have to get in contact with a relative, hopefully, that's got somebody in New York to come in. And that happened once. I, I, I had a thing as I was a cop on patrol. This was the 90s. This woman lived in this woman lived in the Bronx. Her mother lived in Virginia. It was a long weekend. And um, Monday morning, 
I just happened to answer the phone at the pre. I wasn't even answering phones that day. I just happened to answer it. It was an older woman. She says, listen, she goes, my daughter was supposed to come out here for the weekend. She goes, she never showed up. She goes, I called multiple times. She goes, I, I want to report her missing. And I, and I politely, I asked the desk officer, she goes, someone's got to be here to do this. So she says, I'm going to send my sons up. I said, all right. I says, well, give me the address. So I go up to the building and her car was still in the carport. And I'm like, listen, you're going to have to get, if you want me to get into that apartment, you got to send some relatives up here. Wow. A day or two later, there were these two middle-aged gentlemen. We went up there we, with the super. We got into the apartment. Her answer machine, the apartment was fine, but the answer machine is just blinking. You know, it's like her mother's calling, where are you? Her job is calling, where are you? She she also used to volunteer at like a rehab or a homeless shelter, I forget which. They were calling, where was she, right? So we filed the missing persons report. And a couple of weeks later, I'll never forget this. It's like a four to 12. In New York, you had so many vacant lots that people would dump mattresses and tires and shit in vacant lots. Yeah. It got so bad that the sanitation department formed the sanitation police. So you could take- <laughs> They gave like a handful of them guns, right? And they would run around and they would watch vacant lots. And if they caught you like dumping your fucking cabinets when you were doing your kitchen, <laughs> they'd lock you up and hit you with an ECB fine, which is like a lot of money. So anyway, wow. you had the ASP, no, ASPCA, uh, the sanitation police were watching this lot by Co-op City. Here's this guy dropping a 55-gallon drum. Oh, wow. So oh, they no. walls and they go, what's in there? And he says, my girlfriend. Ah. Oh, no. <laughs> so what wound up happening was, if I remember the story correctly, this is 30 years ago, so I hope I don't get it wrong. She met this guy through her community, you know, her volunteer work. And I forget if it was a rehab or, or a homeless shelter. Anyway, I don't know if they were dating or whatever, but they got into an argument. and He punched her in the throat. Oh. And he didn't have to help her, so she died. We choked her to death. It was something with the throat. I remember that. He panicked, and he put her in this drum, and he was driving around with her for a couple of days until he found what he believed to be the right spot. <laughs> and the, the way I remember this was because it was like two precincts over, and the sanitation cops were screaming into the radio like it really shook them up when they opened that drum. I Don't bet. open the drum. You call... The forensic people or whoever to open the drum. Don't do that yourself. Just the fact that he admitted my girlfriend's in there. I mean, really? I, you- I wouldn't be opening it. I'm not, I'm not touching this with a 10 fucking foot pole because I'm a just a sanitation beat cop. There ain't no fucking way I'm getting myself involved in this because if something goes wrong, it's my ass. <laughs> I mean, at least the guy admitted it, but he's not a I'm very gonna, bright criminal. You know, let's, let's get the people here who actually know what the fuck they're doing. I just... Stop people from throwing shit in vacant lots. Oh, well, I was just in, I was just involved in the initial part of the case, and then I never I never got subpoenaed for trial or anything. So obviously, he probably took a plea agreement. I would imagine. I mean, at that point, he's lucky. He's lucky he's in New York because there's no death penalty. You know, yeah. there is. They just won't enforce it. Death penalty on the books. They won't enforce they, it. They, Really? They dropped it for years. It was so. off the books, and then they put it on the books. Yeah. Now, um, maybe they dropped it again, but like in the early 90s, it was put back on the books, but they would never use it. As a matter of fact, there was an Italian guy who killed a woman in New York, and he was also – he also had killed a woman in Oklahoma, and he wanted to die, and New York wouldn't put him to death. So New York transferred him to Oklahoma Department of Corrections and they killed him. Yeah. <laughs> Oklahoma's <laughs> right next door. We're like, what, 30 miles from Oklahoma? Yeah. At least yeah. 
Texas, they <laughs> like ex- Oklahoma. <laughs> well, Texas expedites their people. <laughs> they used to do it a lot more. Yeah, they got a rocket docket over there. Like a couple of times, I went like, like I used to think Florida, you know, put a lot of people to death. And then, like, I was looking at Texas. It slowed down a lot. Depends on the governor, I That's think. That's true. But, That's true. Man, I used to, like, just, like, holy shit. <laughs> cool. Well, when Asa Hutchinson came in with Arkansas, they even did a show on, what, it was Discovery Channel well, or something like that. He was, like, expediting some people to go, well, and it became a big to-do because of the medication that yeah. could be used. And- Asa, was, uh, oh, Asa was also Homeland Security chief, too, so... Uh, so he was like, "Oh, I don't really care anymore." When he came back and became governor, he's like, "Oh, you know, let's just let's just empty the prisons out." But then what we were doing is we had bought, and Oklahoma had the same problem. You couldn't buy the chemical anymore that we were using in the the three chemicals. Yeah. So it was expired, and they said that's inhumane to kill someone with an expired medication that will kill them. I'm like, is it going to kill them faster? Is it not going to kill them? Well, it'll kill them. It'll kill them faster. Well, then what the hell do we have a problem? Just give it to them. Who cares if it expires? Because the, the lawyers get involved in nitpicks. But wasn't it the medication that puts them to sleep that was expired? I can't remember. Okay, but- it's so- a cocktail of drugs. Yeah. One's supposed to make you drowsy. One's supposed to affect your breathing. It's a cocktail. It's right, like yeah. a new drug. There's there's three of them, and he's right. And and then the last one is puts you under so much that the other two kill you. Right, but I yeah. would just always think it. I would not want to be the nurse having to administer that stuff. It's really the last drug. Well, they're not working. Give them another one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking. You let's know, give you the nurse dose, not the prescribed dose. <laughs> the nurse dose. Let's 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 just get 22 with somebody that really knows how to aim. That's all we need, and it costs us 44 cents. I know, but that's considered. Yeah, Utah used to have the firing squad. Yeah. Everybody, well, everybody did once. We have, you know, there was what was that one state you could still hang, get hung? Oh, um, <sighs> yeah, Delaware. I don't care. Uh, yeah, maybe, actually. maybe. I mean, I don't know. And, and that's been a while back. The guy yeah, was yeah. like, he was gonna get. He told me he wanted to get hung, and they they hung him, and he was the last one. They're like, we're not doing this again because it didn't kill him right off the bat. No, he hanging just kinda, doesn't. It just basically he just watched him suffocate. Well, you know, if you put a 50-pound rock on their feet and have a 14-foot drop. They'll snap their neck. Yeah, you don't have to worry about it. It's done. But, you know, basically they're just suffocating. (laughs) Not if their neck's in three pieces. No, if your neck's in three pieces, yeah. (laughs) Right. So the the toughest thing about being a a detective, though, I mean, I'm sure that's the prosecutors, right? No, I mean, it depends on the borough. So, like, I was in a citywide unit. So if you had a case at the time, things have changed. But if you had a case in Queens or Manhattan, they prosecuted the cases correctly. Um, The Bronx and Manhattan, they tended to be more um, defendant friendly. So but the, the biggest obstacles with being a cop in New York is or a detective is you could be doing God's work and they're going to throw you in uniform for something. So if there's a riot, get dressed, you're going in uniform. In, in my 20 years with the New York City Police Department, I worked Times Square 17 years down there, you wow. know, in the crowd. Um, parades, demonstrations, riots, strikes. I mean, you get thrown in uniform 15, probably about a month out of the year. Wow. You know, every 4th of July, every Memorial Day, every Labor Day, they send you down to Coney Island. So even though I work in the Bronx, I'm driving 40 miles to 
you know, the asshole end of Brooklyn to be a Coney <laughs> You're standing there sweating your ass off, you know, and then they're checking you for a bulletproof vest, which, I mean, a lot of the detectives, when you go work in these details in uniform, no one's wearing their vest. And then you get like a cutie captain's going around sticking his finger in everybody's chest to see if they're wearing a vest. <laughs> vest isn't good for uh, everything. <laughs> oh, you sweat your ass off in that thing. Yeah, I bet. So, I mean, one of the things that, that I was interested in, and just kind of, uh, and then we'll wrap it up, I suppose. Um, you know, <clears throat> um, Rhode Island had a really big mob problem for a while. Yeah, the New England mob. Yeah, and I was curious how how bad was it when you started compared to what it was when you left with the mob? So when I first started, right? What year was that? Well, let's let's back up a little bit before I first started. So you had five families in New York, right? And they were involved, like we were talking about earlier, they were involved in everything. You know, cars, uh, prostitution, gambling is huge, um, catering halls, private sanitation. If you wanted a cement truck to show up and fill up the the mob, they owned them. You want your trash hauled away, it's the mob, they owned them. So just before I got hired, like I mean, a couple of years before, Rudy Giuliani was a, was a prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District. He went at the head of the mob. He had the commission case, which targeted the heads of all the five families and got convictions on most of them. He did the pizza connection case where heroin was being brought in from Italy and Canada that was being distributed through pizza parlors. I'm not talking about a couple of decks of heroin. I'm talking about ounces and pounds. Wow. Then he did the windows case where you had corrupt contractors controlled by the mob that were doing the replacement windows in millions of New York's, you know, millions of windows are getting put in, in the New York city housing projects and they're hiking up the cost, which made the mafia rich. I mean, so Giuliani took down a lot of the talent of the mob, like the old school guys, guys that wouldn't get on the phone. You know what I mean? Like the, 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 the Townsend ones. What you have now is a lot, you know, between the RICO laws and the drug laws, guys are going to flip because you're looking at getting 30 years. You know, guys used to do eight, 10, 15 years in the can, no problem. Now you got a middle-aged guy who's done time twice before and, and he's looking at 30 years. You know, he's got kids, he's got grandkids. Mm-hmm. So that's why everybody's flipping. You know what I mean? Because of the sentencing guidelines. Also, with the federal sentencing guidelines, say say you're a New York City mob guy and you get 20 years. You're not going to do 20 years in New York. They can send you anywhere in the prison system. And there's prison, federal prisons throughout the United States. So to bust your balls, they'll send you down to Big Sandy in Texas or Lompoc <laughs> in California. Who the fuck's going to come visit you? Who's going to come visit? You know, if you're in New York, maybe twice a month, your wife will go up there and stay at a motel and and see you for two days. You're in California. You'll get maybe two visits a year. You know what I mean? So that's another reason why guys will flip nowadays. And the prison system isn't it's not club fed the way it was in the 70s and 80s with send you to Danbury. And you're in there with a guy that, you know, some guy that siphoned money out of a bank. You've got all these MS-13 guys. You've got all the drug gangs, the cartel guys. You've got rough motherfuckers in these federal prisons now. You know, so now it's like it's not like the mob runs the prisons anymore. Yeah. You know, what I mean, they've got their own group, but I'm sure to a degree they've got to be subservient because of these these different groups because of, of sheer numbers. Exactly. So uh, 
Wow. Because the mob is is something that, I mean, my only experience, you know, should be and continue to be is like from the movies. So you always wonder how much of that stuff that you see on the movies is actually how it is. Well, it was. It was, but now it's not. So now what you have is all the upper, le- upper echelon talent has either cooperated in jail or got out of jail and they're doing podcasts now, which I find fascinating <laughs> because a lot of these guys are quite well-spoken and have great content. What you have now is, the, you know, between technology and the sentencing guidelines, the way the mob makes their money now is offshore betting. Like they're into a lot of stuff. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But they know there's a stash house somewhere, you know, people that aren't going to complain to the police. Someone's got a grow house or a stash house. Yeah, they'll send a couple of guys in there to hit it because money is money. Yeah. But but most of a lot of their money now is being made in offshore gambling. So if they set up an offshore gambling website in Belize or uh, what's that other country that's big with that? Um, Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Right. It's not illegal. Right. And people in this country are betting over there where they run into trouble is at some point that money has to make its way back here. Like, why would you have this scam set up? So that's where they catch them. The FBI and the IRS catch these guys at some point. The money's got to come back to the United States. And that's, you know, where law enforcement's waiting. But it's not. Will they kill people? Yeah, but it's not like the old days where they're going around clipping guys. It's just it's different. Hmm. Well, it's like that. uh, The Rhode Island. What was the city in Rhode Island that was real bad? Providence. Providence, yeah. Yeah, that was a patriarchal crime family. Yeah, and they were blowing people up on a weekly basis. They're they're putting car bombs in the cars. Yeah, that was like Cadillac, Frank Salemi, and uh, Steve Flemmy, and then the Anjulos. I mean, that I just know this from books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, New York guys I know, Rhode Island I just know from books. It's just like I never realized that Rhode Providence, Rhode Island, I didn't was either. That bad. It just sounds like a quaint little sweet town. And it obviously wasn't exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we get New York. We all understand New York. It's the most populated city in the United States. Okay, there's going to be crime there. You know that in Miami. You know, yeah, makes sense. In yeah. L.A. Yeah, and a little bit in Seattle, but not so much because you know it's Navy town. So there's a lot of people that can't do much. So, but. Oh, my God. Providence. It's like, oh, I don't know. This Lowell, Arkansas is the head of the mob. What? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> if you saw the you saw the town, you'd be like, what? <laughs> it's a itty bitty picturesque town in Arkansas that doesn't really have much of anything. It's not even picturesque. It, it has a ballpark and a, and well, a, and a come and go. Arkansas where Barry Seal was running planes. Right. Oh, Mina. Oh, Mina. yeah. Mina. Yeah, they were they were flying in at all times of the night, moving money and guns. Iran Contra was run out of there. Mm-hmm. I've been listening to a podcast that talks about that about two little boy, two boys that were dead on the tracks that somehow might be connected with that. I haven't finished listening. Oh to it yeah, yet. I heard most of that too. I didn't actually get through it myself. We had to yeah. listen to the rest. That of That sounds like Breaking Bad when they were siphoning that chemical off the train and Todd killed a little boy that rode up on the motorcycle because he was watching him. Oh yeah. Oh, she hasn't seen Breaking Bad. I Brad. haven't. I need to break down and see it. That's that's a that's a great show. Yeah. Now, how realistic? Well, I, I want to ask, how realistic do you find uh, the cop shows that are on TV? I won't watch them. I mean, that's Blue Bloods. I won't watch I, medical shows. Grey's Anatomy. Just I get five minutes into it and I'm irritated. Yeah, I mean, like Lethal Weapon, right? Danny Glover. Oh, that's and, and, bullshit. 
Yeah, well, they all are. They're going around getting into car chases and shooting people. You get into a shooting in New York City, like, say, for argument, say, you and I are working together and we're doing a day shift and we start at 7 in the morning. At 8.30 in the morning, you and I catch a guy robbing a bank. He shot two people and he took a shot at us and we kill him. Best case scenario, like good shooting, 100 yeah. witnesses. We're going to get dragged into the precinct. You're going to get interviewed by a sergeant, lieutenant, detectives. A shrink. The, the duty captain, th that's later. <laughs> District attorney's going to show up with a stenographer and take your statement that day. You're not going home. So if we kill this guy at 8.30 in the morning, you're not going home till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. Next day, yeah. Yeah, and then they're going to put you on the shelf for a while. 30 days. To make sure you're okay and the case yeah. is, is legit. And then within five days, you and I are going to get dragged before a grand jury in whatever borough we got into the shooting and have to testify to our actions between 16 and 23 people. And if they're having a bad day and say, you know what, we don't find their actions justified and they indict us, we get locked up. And now you got to go through the process like everybody else. And now you got it. Now you got to go, shit, do I go bench trial, which hopefully we get a good judge that we're not going to go with a jury trial because, you know, this borough, they don't like cops. Yeah. So it's not like TV. You get into a shooting and, hey, let's go grab a beer. <laughs> I mean, you fucking turned upside down for months until that gets sorted out. Wow. I did not realize that. But Same yeah. thing with car chases and shit. You wreck a fucking police car, forget it. They throw you on foot. You got to go out to Brooklyn months later and requalify. You can't yeah. get into car accidents. It's like state troopers here. Yeah. They get in a car accident. They review the footage and they put them back out in the next car the next day. Wow. They don't do that there. I know it's crazy. I mean, it makes sense. But at the same time, it's like, geez, Louise. Well, I in mean the South, too, we don't put up with all that BS. You know, it's just the way this is. It's the different culture. It's not that it's big a difference. It's too many lawyers in one location. That count. <laughs> <laughs> That's really some truth to that. It's a God's honest truth. Oh, my gosh. But they I mean, will nitpick over a policy and nitpick over it and drag people into court. And finally, all right, enough. All right. And, and they cave. Yeah. So is there any piece of media that you've seen that portrays what it could be close to like? Oh, well, there's a documentary um, that there was a there was a cop in New York that well, him and a gang of other cops were ripping off drug dealers and protecting other drug dealers. Um, cop's name is Michael Dowd. He did. He did about 13 years in jail. He's out now. They did a documentary on it. It's called the seven five. It's about the seven five precinct in Brooklyn. And it's fascinating. And, it, and, and it's all true. I mean, I remember when that was going on. I mean, it was a big rock, the New York City Police Department, wow. because of the level of corruption. But wow. just regular TV. Scorsese gets it right in his mob movies as far as Goodfellas and Casino and the way things happen or, or the Irish Goodfellas movie. is a messed up movie, man. But it's good. Yeah. And that's, that, that was the time period and what was going on. Everybody's going crazy from cocaine. What about The Godfather? That's before my time, yeah. but... It, it it shows the structure of the mob and how people feared it, how people would, would come to them with their problems as opposed to going to the police. Yeah. Well, well, listen, my neighborhood, my neighborhood was Irish and Italian with the mafia sprinkled in. My neighborhood, I mean, people didn't call the cops all that much. Like if you were fucking around with somebody's sister doing something you wouldn't be doing <laughs> or you borrowed money off of somebody you didn't pay him back, you're going to get hit with a bat. 
Yeah. I mean, that was my, and, and God forbid you call the fucking cops. So, you know, it was a different time and like in, in, in the different boroughs, you didn't go to the police with a lot of things. You just didn't. Hmm. I guess it makes sense. I mean, a community tends to stick to itself. Yeah. So oh, it did. <laughs> is there anything that you want to leave us with? Any kind of thoughts or anything that you want to press or make people aware of? Yeah. Um, my name is Vic Ferrari. I've got f- six books. They're all on Amazon. They're great short stories. All my paperbacks are $10. They make ten great $10 stocking stuffers. They're about 220 pages long. Oh, okay. And they're $2.99 on ebook download. Those, those, are, those are novellas. 50,000 words? 60. That's a novella. Yeah. You got a novella. That's what you, so you can you can go around and tell the the pompous people that are interviewing on these podcasts, you know, the ones that you're like, I wouldn't talk to these people unless they asked me uh, or paid me one of the two. You could tell them, no, I wrote a novella and they'll be all impressed. You know, I, I never turned out unless a podcast really unless the podcast host rubbed me the wrong way. I, I don't turn them down because you never know. First off, just going on the on, on podcasts. It helps me become a better storyteller. It reaches another audience and it's good publicity. It, it's, I get sometimes I've, I've only turned a handful down and it's because I just don't think it's a good fit or I think they're going to bust my balls. Yeah. Like they're, they're very anti police. I don't mind, you know, someone wants to ask me about police corruption. That's fine. And I've got stories about it. But at the same time, I'm not going to sit there and defend what I did for 20 years. Yeah. Well, I try to tell people, you know, it comes to cops. If you're going to have your head up your ass and call cops names, you're the problem because cops are just people. They're just human beings doing the exact same thing you're doing. They just have a job that you think's bad. It's not them. It's yeah. It's, they don't make policy. Yeah. They, they don't make the laws. They don't, they don't make policy. It's just civil servants making, you know, 50, 60, $40,000 a year, 35, 30, Depends on where, sure. Yeah, the Carroll County Sheriff Department. I think they probably they would make thirty-two thousand a year, fifteen bucks an hour. Probably, yeah. Yeah, if if that, and yeah. they have to buy their own gun, their own uniform. And well, yeah, we had to buy our own stuff too up front. Really, that sucks. I don't think they gave you, a, like, you got a uniform allowance at the end of the year that nah. was taxed. But you know, when you're a rookie cop and you're 21 years old living at home, and you had to come up with 900 bucks, yeah. For your Uniform, you know, I had to borrow money from my parents. My father, my father had me laughing. He goes, "What the fuck? I know you had a full time job now." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this. I don't think they do that anymore as much. I don't know. New York does. Do they still do it? Jeez, that sucks. I mean, just uh, you think they'd want to own the guns that way they could trace them instead of having everybody buy their own? No, you buy your own. That's ridiculous. They should. They should buy them. Do the ballistics on them, then hand it out. That way, I think it would. Yeah, but you got thirty-five to forty thousand members at any given time. You know, you know how big of a thing you would need yeah. to store all that stuff. And, it and just, it just creates another unit. Yeah, and more paperwork and more of a hard time. I'm sure that's been discussed. Initially, you know I mean? it would be a real pain in the ass, but after about two years, you'd only have, you know, the guns would start going into circulation. You take the gun from Bill, who just quit. Or got fired because he's a dumbass and give it to Jill, who is now new new employee. <laughs> you know, just recycle that shit. Uh. 
And the ballistics are done, so if they shoot anybody, you know. For them, it's probably just easier to be like, okay, give me your gun. We're going to do ballistics. I'll give it back when we're done. Yeah, good luck getting it back. I bet you a dollar half the guns disappear and never come back again, even when they don't match. I I don't know. You're trusting 15 people to handle that thing and and it not get lost. The bureaucracy, though. Did you have a lot of problems with bureaucracy whenever you were there? Yeah, sure. It was always a pain in the ass, wasn't it? Yeah, you'd get told one thing, and then you would go to do it, and then someone would stop you and go, what are you doing? Like, I was ordered to do this. No, you can't do that. And then, yeah, I mean, especially if you're a cop or a detective, you're a peon. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I mean, just like to minimize it, like they'll throw you out there in uniform to work St. Patrick's Day Parade. And a captain will come running up to you and say, put up those wooden barriers and face the crowd. You put up the wooden barriers and 15 minutes later, an inspector comes by and goes, who the fuck told you to put these barriers up? <laughs> oh, man. So, I, I mean, that's just a minor thing. But, yeah, that, that used to go on all the time. What's the what's the I uh, was that my saying that I did the other day? It's like, uh, you know, in my company, we have a real problem with communication. But, you know, we just don't talk about that. This is about what it is. Well, so can they, can someone, if they wanted to contact you to get one of your books signed? It would be a lengthy process and I'd have to know you before I start giving out my address, but just, just go on Amazon and type in my name, Vic Ferrari, and you can see a bunch of all my books come up and you could preview I think it's 20% of my books for free. Yeah, yeah. Novellas. There, you wrote novellas. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think you can get him to say the fancy word. <laughs> you don't think novellas. Vic's going to say the fancy word? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, grab his book on Amazon. I'll put some links in the show notes. Uh, and feel free to contact me. Uh, if you want to get your book signed, I'll be glad to sign it, even though I didn't write it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you can follow me and get a hold of me on Twitter and Instagram at VicFerrari50. You could charge like an extra 20 bucks. They mail it to you, mail it back. He's like me. Pay for the postage up front and everything. And I've done it before and it just becomes a hassle. Yeah. And one guy in Canada wanted me to do it. Oh, and good I, grief. I had the book. Had the book autographed and everything, and they told me it was twenty bucks to mail it to. I go, it's a book, yeah, like, right? It, it's you know, it's it's a paperback, twenty bucks. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. Well, you know, we have the same problem. We have a Canadian store, so we ship everything in bulk. For the company I work for, I make all the commercials for Explore Scientific, which is they slightly underwrite this because they pay for all the music, but uh, I work. It's a telescope optics company, so we have to mail everything up. But instead of doing it one at a time, we send it all up in a big truck because for some reason it's cheaper to mail or send a giant truck of shit to Canada than it is to send one or two little things to Canada. It's just, it's for some reason, it's just super expensive. That's so messed up. It is messed up. Wow. All right, so. Ah, uh, we have two more people lined up for an interview, Andrea. Uh, one guy, he is going to explain to us what being a professional shaman is. 
and he'll need to explain it to me because I don't get it, whatever uh, that is. I don't either. Do you have to go to school to be a professional shaman? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And and then also the next guy, uh, let's see, I, I had his name called up and then I screwed around and got my that Austin Wells and Dale Allen Rose, R O W S E. I'm not sure which one's which at this Austin point. Austin Wells is the. Um, oh, you got the. You wrote it down. I wrote, Thank God. See, he has to understand that, you know, I'm not a technology person. I like paper. He's missing it to me on all these Google stuff, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to write it down. <sighs> Austin Wells, he's, I call him, he talks about the lightsaber. Oh, no, no. He's, he's all about the Jedi. He's the, the Jedi religion. Right? Yeah, he is a professor, a prof, professor, school firefruit, whatever that fucking. You can word tell us things we need to know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah what that word is <laughs> of, of being Jedi, and so that's it's like a religion in England. It's actually a religion. They've yeah. actually established it as a real religion. It's, it's weird. So we're going to talk to him about that, and he's going to talk to us about his lightsaber academy. Um. I, I don't know anything about it, so I figured it's a good opportunity to figure out some stuff. Anything that you got going on? Oh, and then I've got uh, <clears throat> the podcast from uh, Haley Zega, who was lost in the Buffalo National Buffalo National River for two and a half days whenever she was six years old. And we've got a podcast with that coming up. That's going to be a special. And uh, so it's going to be really cool once they get that done. Expect that in about two to three weeks. Yep. What Sounds. else? I think that's all that I'm aware of. All you're aware of? Yeah. Okay. Well, if that's it. Appreciate everybody listening. Thank you very much, Vic Ferrari, for being on. I really learned a lot. Love your stories. I definitely can't wait to read your books. And um, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Paul and Andrew. I appreciate it. Yep. All right. And so we always say bye. Bye. Bye.